We saw this morning how we can turn serving Jesus into a, a misery, into a burden, into a difficult and arduous task. Um, and then we, we spent time looking at how Jesus serves us and how good that is, that we are his friends, that we are his bride, that we are sons along with him of God the Father. Um, it was wonderful praising God, praying together after that. And now we're going to turn to the joy of serving Jesus. What is it like to be a son in the family business? Um, what, what does it feel like to be serving Jesus? What was it like for that returned son um, in his robe and his ring on the next day when he woke up after the party with a full belly and his father said, son, I'm going to go and harvest the North Field. Do you want to come with me? Um, well, how, how good it must have felt to work with his dad again. So, so we're going to think about the joy of serving Jesus. Um, to, to set that up, we need to realise that it's not that Jesus served us and then turned it over to us. I think we sometimes feel that Jesus kind of, he did his bit, he served us, he taught, he did miracles, he went to the cross, he died our death, he rose from the dead, he returned to the Father and he put his feet up and said, right, over to you church. Um, that is not what he did. Um, it's, it's a huge mistake. We fall into that way of thinking, but now it's up to us to do our bit. Um, I remember um, when I was here in Manchester uh, walking, we had an office in those days, a church office in the mill, um, and I was walking there one morning. Um, it's probably cold and wet. Um, <laughs> and, and I remember walking along and kind of getting to the mill. I'd slept in late. I'd not read my Bible. I'd not prayed. I was thinking, oh, it's going to be a rubbish day because I've not read my Bible and I've not prayed. Um, I've not done the required sacrifice. I've not killed the goat so the sea god will be angry with me. I've not read the Bible so the taskmaster in heaven will give me a bad day. And I realised what I was doing as I walked up the steps. There were a lot of them. Um, our, our office was on the 95th floor. And, and um, I walked up the steps and I thought, that's just so wrong. And I remember praying, thank you, God, that you are the sort of God who will bless me, even though I've not done what I ought. And I've not read your Bible. I've not prayed to you. Thank you that you are not that sort of God. Um, he is a God who, who serves us. Um, one example, don't worry about turning here, but in, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, we're told that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. He is our great high priest in heaven. Because Jesus is our great high priest in heaven, it means that we can, we can pray to God. He intercedes for the Father on our behalf. He brings us into his Father's presence as sons. So we can pray, we can approach the throne of grace, and we can find help in time of need. We can pray to God because Jesus is in heaven, but also we don't have to because Jesus is in heaven. He is interceding for us. So you forgot to pray before you lead the children's group one Sunday. Jesus didn't. He prayed for you. Um, the Spirit did as well. He intercedes with groans deeper than words. We, we are not now, it's not over to us. Jesus has done his bit, now we have to do ours. No, Jesus is still serving us. He's praying for us and he is blessing us. He is leading us. He is guiding us. Jesus is the head of Grace Church. It's why we love having more than one elder in our churches, because you go, Jesus is the head, 
And then between us as elders um, at Grace Church or at Broad Grace, we, we try to follow him faithfully. Um, Jesus is the, the head, the servant, the leader. And one of the ways Jesus serves us is through our service. Um, and again, this was radical for me when I first realised that Jesus gives good gifts. When we're told that our service, whether it's teaching, whether it's um, administration, whether it's giving financially, whether it's hospitality, are gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit, it, it transforms their nature. Jesus gives good gifts to his people. His, his way of blessing us is to make us his servants. Our service of Jesus is not our gift to him, it's his gift to us. Um, I, was, I was helped to see this um, when I was making uh, a sandpit. Um, it was a nice afternoon, we got a, a wooden sandpit for Daisy, it came flat packed, and I was in the courtyard making it um, to kind of put the sand in it so she could play in it, and she woke up from her nap and she came downstairs and she wanted to help me. And um, so we, we made the sandpit together. Daisy put the screws in the holes and I screwed them in. Um, sometimes she put the right screw in the right hole. Um, not always. She brought other bits of wood that she thought would make useful additions to the sandpit. Um, <laughs> it, it, we had a really lovely afternoon. It took a lot longer than it would have taken <laughs> if I just made the sandpit. And I thought, this is probably how God sees planting a church with me. <laughs> he, he could do it a lot easier, a lot quicker without me, but he enjoys working with his child. God does not need us. He does not live in a temple built by human hands as though he needed anything. But he delights as a father to work with us. And, and I found that just so helpful to think, I'm just not that important. My work doesn't matter that much. But God loves me and loves to work with me. And, and you see that throughout the scriptures. Um, I was reading through Ruth and, and Boaz is a righteous man. He's a, he's a godly man. He's a picture of Christ. He marries the, the foreign woman and brings her into the people of Israel. And actually from Boaz and Ruth come King David and King Jesus. Um, in their family line, but he's, he's like Jesus. And Boaz lives in the time of the judges when every man did as he saw fit in his own eyes. And it was a dangerous time to be in Bethlehem. Um, it's very clear that, that the Lord guides Ruth to the field of Boaz, because in most fields around Bethlehem, she would not have been safe. Um, she would have been abused, she could have been treated horrendously, because there was no king, no law, no fear of God, in most of the people there. And <clears throat> it's not a main part or point in the book of Ruth, but Boaz's men treat Ruth well even before Boaz arrives. Um, the overseer has let her glean, they've, they've looked out for her. And when Boaz arrives and he greets the harvesters, he says, the Lord be with you, and they reply, the Lord be with you. And it struck me that the men walking home from Boaz field at the end of the day would have done so with their heads held high. Nothing happened in their field to cause them to be ashamed. 
they could go back to their wives and their children um, as honest men who'd done an honest day's work. And that was not true in most of the fields. And I reckon that Boaz's men were probably happier than the guys who worked for the other farmers, where the women were mistreated, where the poor were, were spurned, where it was all about profit and not about generosity, where their boss didn't show up with wine and bread at midday to give them a feast. You see, Boaz's men were blessed by working for a good Lord. And, and it's the same for us. Serving Christ makes us who we want to be. It, it gives us the integrity, the honesty, um, the compassion, the generosity that we, we long to have. When we obey Christ, it's, it's not as though we give him something. No, he gives us the blessing of, of us becoming the very people we want to be. Um, you get an extraordinary example of this. Um, and it's not an isolated one. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Um, page 1162, if you're using the, the Bibles here. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints." Paul is collecting money for the church in Jerusalem during the famine. And, and he's telling the Corinthians about the Macedonian churches where they were under famine conditions, they had had um, a severe trial, and they lived in extreme poverty. And they pleaded to give their money to the collection for the churches in Judea. That is bonkers. I mean, I've been amazed over the years at the generosity of God's people in supporting um, ministry and, and church planting. But no one's actually yet pleaded with me to give me money. <laughs> well, no, one's, no one's begged on their knees that they might give money to the cause of Christ. And, and then when you inquire, you realise that they, they might not eat the next week because they are doing so. They, they but they're... They want to. It's their overflowing joy. They love serving Jesus at huge cost to themselves. And so they, they give. Because there is nothing happier than to be like Christ, the one who was anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions. And when we serve Jesus, we become like Jesus. That is the blessing. That is the gift that he gives us. Our, our service of Christ makes us pipes of love and grace to one another. We, we love being in a church where people serve one another because we benefit from it as others serve us, but we also benefit from it as we serve others. We're transformed to be like Jesus. We get to live the life we were created to live. Christ's service is 
a gift to us. When, when we are asked to serve by Jesus, he does that to bless us. And, and I think getting our heads around that is, is what will I mean we don't have to just all stop serving entirely, which is probably the point we're at at the minute, um, or a lot of us, but where we can begin to, to see our service of Christ turned around so that it stops being a weary duty and becomes a means of grace from him to us, a means of his blessing poured out on us. Now, sometimes that's obvious because the service builds us up. I know that when I study the Bible to preach, I grow through that. I understand more. I, I see Jesus in the text. I, I learn what he's like. I, I trust him more faithfully. And then as I preach, I see the Spirit um, using me, giving me words I hadn't planned to say, touch people's hearts. And I'm amazed by that. And I'm encouraged by that because I realise it's not me. I see miracles occurring. And, and of course, but, but other bits of service, you know, it's more difficult. What about when, when someone in church um, needs to move house and, and their place is in a bit of a state and they need help packing up and shifting their stuff and, and, and someone asks you to help? And how is that a blessing? Well, well, it's a blessing because it puts us where Jesus is and, and teaches us to rely on him and to trust him and to love him because it draws us closer to our master. See, we are slaves. The, the Bible uses the language unashamedly. Paul often refers to himself as a slave of Christ, not just a servant, a slave. One owned by Christ. Yes, he is a friend. Yes, he is the part of the bride. Yes, he is a child. But he's also a slave. And, and when you think, well, what, what do we do with that? We were created as those who, who serve. How do we tie that alongside son? And I think the answer is that, that the point about slavery in the Bible is it is all about who your master is. Um, we, we think of slavery in entirely negative terms. Um, and, and most human slavery is horrendous. Um, you know, there's good reason why we think of it negatively. Um, we sung Amazing Grace. Um, John Newton was a slave trader and, um, before he was saved. And, and the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade, was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. Um, and and, and we, we think of slavery so negatively. But back in the Roman world, that, most slaves had a horrendous experience, but not all. If you had a good master, then, then things were quite different. Um, there's the story of the centurion who sends his trusted friends to Jesus to ask Jesus to heal his slave. He cares for his slave, that he, he humbles himself. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to speak with you. I'm a Gentile sinner, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. There you see a soldier who is a good master, who cared for his slave, who put himself out for his slave. There, there were masters like that. And and the point of being a slave of Christ is our master is our friend. Our master is our husband. Our master is our brother. We, we are owned by Christ. 
And when you are owned by a master like that, that is very encouraging because it means that no one else is going to get their hands on you because there are plenty of other masters who would like us to worship them. We were created to worship. Um, we cannot not worship. Everyone worships something. Um, the, the man who looks like he's got it all, who's, who's rich, who, who has a great job, a great car, a great house, um, he probably worships money. And money is a miserable master. Um, money never makes you happy because you can never have quite enough to be secure. And there's a great proverb in, in the book of Proverbs, I can't remember which one it is. It says that the, the rich man can pay his ransom, but the poor man doesn't fear being kidnapped. Um, <laughs> the rich man, can, his, his money can help him, but actually he's still terrified of being kidnapped because he's rich. We, we serve a master and our slavery is freedom. And that sounds contradictory because we think freedom is not having a master. We think freedom is that I can do what I want. The problem is I can never do what I want because if I am not Christ's, ultimately I am Satan's. And Jesus says that, that to the um, Pharisees that their father is not God, that their father is the devil. Every idol, every other God, at the end of the day when you push back far enough, Satan wants you. If you are not Christ's, you are his. Our slavery of Christ is freedom because all other masters will burden us. All other masters will demand hard service. You want to serve money? Well, you better be prepared to work hard. You better be prepared to, to stay at the office late. You better be prepared to lay your marriage and your family on the altar of money. You want money, you can have money but he will cost you everything. He will rip your joy from you, your love, your humanity. He is not a good master. Jesus is the master who serves his slaves. And there is a, a wonderful circle and, and tension and miracle in that. So we are slaves and and our service of Jesus is, is amazing, it is freeing, and it is wonderful, because it is impossible. Um, turn back to John chapter 13. I just want to show you how, how impossible it is to serve Jesus. Um, John read this earlier, page 1081, um, in these Bibles, page 1081, John chapter 13. Now, towards the end of this section, Jesus says to his disciples, verse 12, Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now, I used to think that that meant I ought to just do unpleasant acts of service for my brothers and sisters in church. If I heard that, that someone in church needed to move house and, and needed to be done, that their rent was up, they needed to move somewhere else, I'd just need to go around and work hard and shift their stuff because that's what Jesus did. <clears throat> I would, needed to be prepared to do things that were difficult, to, to wash smelly feet in, in following Christ. 
Then when I preached on this um, a few months ago, I realized that was not what Jesus was asking because of the way John set this up. Uh, chapter one, uh, verse 1 of chapter 13. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served. The devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel round his waist. Jesus served his disciples like this because he loved them. When he says we should do likewise, he doesn't say we should wash feet. He says that we should love one another enough to wash feet. And I remember driving to the house of a friend in church, uh, Broadgrace, to, to help her move house. It's not a theoretical example. I didn't really want to. I knew it was going to be a long night's work. I knew it was going to involve heavy lifting. I knew it was going to be tiring. I was tired anyway. Um, and I realized that, that I was not obeying Christ by going and doing it because his command was that I loved her enough to go and do it. In theory, I loved her. I liked hanging out with her. She was a friend. But I prayed and I said, Lord, I need to love her as a sister now so that I will happily go and, and move house. And the Lord answered the prayer, and I enjoyed the hard work. I enjoyed lifting the stuff and grunting and groaning to pack it into the trailer and to get it up to her new place. And, and it became a joyful service in the way that Christ joyfully served us because he gave me a love for my sister, not just a teeth gritted ability to serve. Do you see the difference? And it's, it's as we serve out of love for Christ and love for one another that the service becomes a blessing to us. When we serve because we have to, then service becomes a burden. Unless the act of service is intrinsically joyful. You know, if you love um, making coffee and your job is to make coffee, then you'll, you'll enjoy it. And Christ blesses us like that. But so much service is not intrinsically joyful. It is hard. Looking after children all day to day is hard work. There is joy in it when they're sweet, but they're not always sweet. It's hard work. And yet the guys doing that, I imagine, have prayed and are doing it through love of Christ, through love of us and through love of our children. And it is a blessing to them to serve like that, as well as a blessing to us. That's how it works. And, and I want us to finish by seeing just how far this goes. Um, and I hope this encourages you, because this shows what it looks like to be served by Jesus as we serve him. And it also shows us the extent of, of how our service of him depends on his love of us. Um, could you turn to John chapter 21? Simon Peter, the son of John, is a terrible servant of Jesus. Um, he was given the greatest responsibility Jesus had ever given anyone. Um, he was head of the church, leader of the apostles. 
you are the rock. On this rock, I will build my church, Peter. And he had betrayed Jesus. He had denied three times that he even knew Jesus, despite him giving Jesus his word that he would die with him if necessary. Peter has completely failed as a servant of Jesus. And, and you may well feel that you can identify with him. John chapter 21. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Peter knows it's over. He knows there's no future for him as, a, as an apostle, as one of the chosen heralds of Jesus who will take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He knows that can't be his job anymore. He probably hopes that Jesus will forgive him enough to have him back as a believer. He probably hopes that, that as he spends the rest of his life back on, on the Sea of Tiberias, Sea of Galilee, fishing, that as he hauls the net, as he pulls the oar, as he mends the sails, that he will at least know that Jesus has forgiven him. But he knows that surely must be it. He's blown it. And the others feel the same way. I'm not sure they're all even fishermen, but they go with him. Oh, we've had it. Maybe Peter will give us a job. You know? <laughs> Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And he knows because this is not the first time this has happened. When Jesus called them to be his apostles, his heralds, his messengers, it was when they were fishing. And he said, cast the net on the other side and they hauled in a huge catch and Jesus said you will become fishers of men and Jesus repeats it he is calling them again and John realizes what's happening it is the Lord maybe it isn't over for us he's he's recommissioning us to be his missionaries he isn't finished with us we haven't blown it Peter it is the Lord but Peter knows that he's blown it as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he'd taken it off and jumped into the water. I don't think he's got a clue what he's doing. He just wants to get away. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. He's humiliated. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards off. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Peter gets to the shore, soaking wet, and sees that there is a a charcoal fire, a fire with coals on it. There was one other time in John's Gospel that a charcoal fire is lit. It's lit by the guards outside um, Annas's house, the high priest. Um, which I think it's Caiaphas's house. I think they might, it's one of them, Annas or Caiaphas. 
and they, they've arrested Jesus. It's cold, they know it's gonna be a long night. They light a fire to keep warm and Peter warms himself by that charcoal fire and twice there denies that he even knows Jesus. And Jesus is good with detail. You'll know this if you followed him for any length of time. He is good with detail and he lights a charcoal fire and Peter gets it. And when Jesus says, bring some of the fish, it's Peter who goes and gets them. He gets that Jesus is saying, I know what happened, Peter. It's going to be all right. Jesus took the bread, gave it to them, did the same with the fish. It's the same language John used when, when, Peter, when Jesus fed 5,000, saying, you are going to do this again. You are going to help me again feed the crowds with the bread of life, with the gospel. You are going to be my followers again. You are going to be my heralds. You are going to be my apostles. And Peter must have wept with wonder and presumably thought well that is more than I could have dreamed of the forgiveness of Christ runs so deep that he will have me serve him in in the same way he probably thought well of course John will lead now of course he will John John was faithful John stood by the cross John will look after Mary but Jesus hasn't finished with giving Peter jobs Verse 15, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Peter is hurt that Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? But the Lord only ever wounds to bind up. And, and he had to ask three times because Peter had denied him three times. And he needs Peter to know that that is undone. Peter denied Jesus three times. Peter declared three times that he loved Jesus. And Jesus said three times, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. That is the job of the, the pastor. Feed the sheep, feed the lambs, feed the flock with the word of truth. And at this point, the flock is the disciples. He's saying, Peter, you will be the pastor of the pastors. You will be the apostle who teaches the apostles. You are Peter. You are the one who confessed me as Christ and on this rock I will build my church. You denied me, you blew it. But my forgiveness goes far enough and deep enough that I will reinstate you and you will serve me exactly the same way you did before. You lose nothing. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that amazing that, that it's not that Peter gets forgiven but can't be an apostle? It's not even that he gets forgiven but he now has to be number two to John. He gets forgiven and he gets reinstated. And when Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost before the crowd and preached the gospel and saw 3,000 people saved, he must have wept with wonder that he was even there. Because by rights he should have been pulling up some fish in Galilee. That is what our service of Jesus is 
It is him saying to me, I know your sin. I know, John Hindley, that you have nothing in you that makes you worthy to stand and preach my gospel. But I love you and I will give you the grace to do it. And I know you'll sin again tomorrow and I've forgiven that and you will preach again until I determine that I call you home or I come back. Because I know you love serving me and I love working with you and I love you and I delight in you and your love for me, Jesus says, is better than wine. And so I will help you to love me. I will give you opportunities to serve, gifts of service. And, and it's that when, when the apostles were whipped, they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the gospel. When you are cleaning up sick in the children's room, rejoice that you have been counted worthy to serve the little ones that Jesus loves so much and values so highly. When you are popping round a meal to someone in church who's been ill, who's had an operation, who's had a baby, and no one else even knows, and you kind of hoped someone would find out, and thank you. Well, God knows, and he loves when we do things that no one else notices, because doesn't he always serve us in ways no one else notices? Isn't he always blessing us and loving us and caring for us, and we get to be like him? But it goes even further because Jesus has one more blessing for Peter. Um, it's extraordinary. This is not how I would motivate someone when, when I just re, reinstated them with a shaky faith. Um, Peter, you're going to get to serve me. Oh, and by the way, they'll crucify you. But that's what Jesus does. Verse 18, I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter will glorify God. Peter had said to Jesus, John chapter 13, verse 37, Lord, I will follow you even if I should die for you. But he didn't. He, he didn't have the guts. He didn't have the faith. He didn't have the love. He didn't die for Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. He had wanted to love Jesus enough to die for him. And here Jesus says, you will. I will trust you in that same situation again, Peter. And you will not deny me. You will be crucified for me. Jesus gives Peter crucifixion as a blessing. Now, now that sounds insane, doesn't it? It's a horrendous death. And yet Peter didn't receive it as a, as a punishment or a discipline from the Lord. He didn't receive it as, as something had gone wrong, that he was dying so horrifically. Peter would have remembered by the Sea of Tiberias how Jesus had promised him that one day he would get a chance to not deny Jesus. One day he would get a chance to serve Jesus even unto death. That was the desire of Peter's heart. He had wanted to be the one disciple faithful enough to die for Jesus. He had wanted to love Jesus to death. And, and I don't know if there was a charcoal fire burning when the judge asked Peter. Probably was. 
Jesus is good at the details. But a judge would have asked Peter, do you know Jesus of Nazareth? And Peter would have said, yes, he is my Lord. I love him. My guess is Peter said it three times. And then they crucified him upside down because he asked them to, because he didn't consider himself worthy to die the same way as Jesus. And, and as he hung and died, his heart would have been full of wonder that Jesus had given him this opportunity of service again and had so worked in him that the man who once denied his Lord now had the love to die for his Lord. And, and I just think, how do we get our heads around this? A God who loves us enough to give us crucifixion as a way of serving him. It, it just changes every idea we have of God, every invention we can make up about God. Peter doesn't give him his death as a way of, of gifting something to Jesus. Jesus gives it to Peter as a gift. Because Jesus uses our service of him to make us like him, to draw us into his family, so that we might even suffer as heirs of God, like Christ suffered. So that the world might see that the power of God in us is a power to suffer, a power to die, and to do so with a song of praise on our lips and with Christ's love in our hearts. That is the miracle of the gospel. Not that the angels came and sprung Peter free from the cross. I mean, they did do that, didn't they? Peter walked out of jail with an angel one time. But one time he didn't. And actually, I think the greater miracle is not the time when an angel led Peter out of prison, but the time when a guard led Peter out of prison and nailed his hands to a cross because Peter chose to love Jesus and not deny him. I guess however we mess up following Jesus, we, we don't do worse than Peter. That denial on the night of crucifixion. And if, if Peter can be returned and reinstated and can die for his Lord, then, then Christ has not finished blessing you. He has not finished giving you acts of service that will draw your heart closer to him. He has not finished pouring out his joy and his love on you. And he will never finish. He will never finish serving you. He will never finish giving to you. He will never finish loving you. In 10,000 years, he will serve you and he will love you and he will bless you. Because that is his very nature. Our Heavenly Father, we sit in awe of your incredible love shown to us in Jesus Christ, that you would forgive Peter to the uttermost, that Christ would reinstate him as his friend, as his apostle, as the head of his church, and as his martyr. Father, I pray that you would give my brothers and sisters here the the desire of their hearts in service of Christ. That their sacrificial suffering, that their deep love for one another, 
that the service that you give them would set Manchester on fire for Jesus, that the streets of Salford would ring with his praise and that people would be saved because of the love and the faithfulness of this church in response to the love and the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.